I want you to imagine for a moment uh, your ideal family, like the, the ideal family, the one that you think is like the perfect family. I want you to get that picture in your mind. Uh, for, for many of us, uh, family, as you're thinking about your favorite family, um, it brings to mind the idea of like a cheery vacation or happy holidays, winter days, well, well, it's snowy outside, spent around a table playing cards and drinking hot chocolate. That's like, that's a good family day. Isn't that feels like Norman Rockwell right there? Surely uh, you have a picture of an ideal family in your mind. And uh, that, that prompt, that thought, it reminds me of uh, back in, when I was studying preaching, uh, my first preaching class, my professor, in the first day, day number one of preaching at, at the Moody Bible Institute, he, uh, he asked us, a bunch of you know, 18-year-old, 19-year-old kids, hey, who's your favorite preacher? And uh, let's just list them out. And we started you know, spitballing names and throwing names on the board and saying people who had like, popular radio shows or maybe even a TV show or podcasts. And he was writing them all down and omnisciently being like, yeah, that person too, that person too, okay, okay, okay. After we were all done, um, my professor looked at us. I thought he was going to be like, great job, guys. You got all the good ones. And he um, instead looked very sour. I realized later this was just his resting face. (laughs) But he looked angry at us, and he lamented. He said, you know, what's interesting to me is that out of all my decades of doing this, that there are two names that never stick up on that board. The first is my name. That's what he told us. We are like, Doc, come on, like. I'm not going to suck up to you on the first day of class. Come on, man. The second name that he said was a little bit more concerning to him. He said, you know, the, the, the name that really bothers me is, is not my name, but the name that really bothers me is the fact that no student at this school has ever come into the school, and when I've asked that question, said the name of the pastor at their home church. He said, it never happens where, you know, the, the, oh, my pastor back at home is my favorite preacher. And his point for us wasn't that most preachers in local pulpits are bad. I mean, amen to that, I hope. Uh, <laughs> his point to us young, young, young aspiring preachers was to say, if you're looking to, to go into full-time ministry with your life, don't do it thinking it's going to be some sort of ecstasy. Realize that um, preaching the word is a, is a, is a ministry. It is a responsibility. Sometimes it can be drudgery. It can be uh, uh, just, just mundane and rote, even ignored. And, and here's what he said. I remember this so clearly. He said, because we often fail to appreciate that which is familiar to us. Isn't that true? Like you get so close to someone, you forget all of the positive aspects of them. And nothing, church, nothing is more familiar than that which is familial. See where I'm going with this? Not yet. I'll help you. Okay, here we go. Um, I wonder how many of you, when I asked, you know, dream up your ideal family, did you actually think of your own family? Chances are you thought of some modern-day equivalent of the Cleavers or Chip and Joanna. You you thought of your sister's family. You thought of your best friend's family. If you did imagine your own family, I I bet you probably thought of some image of like a a person who has been ripped out of a picture, like like that movie Coco. And your thought for improving your family was maybe if so-and-so came back into the picture, then we would be complete. And if we can be really honest here today, can we be honest this morning? Probably we're going to be honest, right? Some of you, honesty, all up for honesty, because this is going to be offensive in a moment, but all up for honesty? 
Oh, have some spine, you guys. <laughs> if you're really honest, maybe the mental picture you had in your mind today was if so-and-so never came into the picture, then we'd have the perfect family. Okay, that's honest, right? Okay, that's, that's maybe where we are today. When we think about our families, it, it's, it's often that we feel that our family is not ideal, that something else is lacking, that we need something else. And families are love, families are care, families are support and help and joy. When, when the culture of your family is healthy, your family mirrors Psalm 133, which says how, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. But families are also marked by selfishness, bitterness, resentment, and Bluntly, our families are, are, are marked by our own sin, aren't they? No family in this world will navigate the seasons of life without some sort of tension and strife. Amen? I mean, is this honest? Yeah, it's honest. There is just one thing, one skill, I believe, that tips the scales for how your family comes out on the other side of tension. And that's good news to us. There's not a thousand things we need to work on if we're going to figure out how to navigate strife in our families. Just one thing. Our families, they rise and they fall on the ability to, if we're in a family math series, to use a math term, to solve for X. Here's where I'm, here's where I'm going. Uh, um, to, to find solutions, to bring resolution to your problems. If you mastered the art of dealing with conflict, your family would have a great shot of looking ideal. The skills uh, we learned in high school or in, in elementary school even, um, every, math, every math question that I approached, we called it a problem. You ever notice that? Math questions are problems. They're problems that you have to solve. And um, the skills we learned were to solve the problems. And in families, we likewise, we need to learn the skills to help us solve our problems. Every family relationship we have rises and falls solely on our ability to resolve conflicts. And so in our family math series today, the, the, the operation that we're uh, talking about today, the topic that we're addressing, I mean, you guessed it already, it's what do you do when your family experiences division, division? We can concede that every single family in this room here, including my own, experiences division. When it comes to math, I, I don't know if you remember your math days. Math is different today. I don't, I don't know. My, my kids are coming home with, like, kindergarten worksheets, and they're, like, telling us how to do math. And I'm like, that's not how you do it, right? But, but when I was learning math, um, there was addition, subtraction, multiplication. All of that was pretty basic, easy to learn. I mean, in, in addition, subtraction, multiplication, uh, you take whole numbers, you operate them, you always end up with whole numbers. You ever realize that? One plus one is? That's, that's God's math. Okay. One plus two is three. Five minus three is? Okay. Larry's an educator and he's like cringing. Um, four times five is? 20. But what's seven divided by three? Right. And what's 11 divided by 13? Right. It, it takes you an extra step to compute because division often it produces fractions and remainders. And, and this is where I want to go this morning is that division in our families takes an extra step for us to solve. And that's actually the title of my message is Family Math Division, uh, Solving for X, the Extra Step. 
There's a reason it takes an extra step to solve for x, because in Scripture, uh, addition and subtraction and multiplication are all native and germane to the Garden of Eden. It's only division that shows up after the fall of humanity when sin enters the world. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see subtraction. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. That's a part of God's good design in the Garden of Eden. And hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's addition in the Garden of Eden. God tells these uh, families to be fruitful and... That's going to be the best sermon in this series this next week. You better come back here. No snow, I promise. Come back for multiplication next week. But Genesis 3 happens in the garden, and all of a sudden, Adam and Eve, they sin against God. They are separated from God. Sin, which always separates. Sin, which always divides. It's what we say. Sin divides. Sin, it reigned over humanity in its various forms of division, and it complicated all of our life and our relationships. Adam and Eve are fighting and hiding. Cain kills Abel. The whole world is fractured. What is a fraction but a division? If anybody knew about family division, it was Jesus' own family here on earth. Before Joseph and Mary ever got married, there was a baby, scandal, and chaos. I've always found it intriguing that that evening, that late night when Joseph returns to his own town on what will become Christmas Eve, he is denied a bed. This man who is from this town goes back to the town where he's from, and there's no space for him. Why? Well, is it not because there's scandal in his own life? And I think the entrance of God into the world and Joseph and Mary's family caused them to experience division from their own extended families. Even the small bits we know of Jesus growing up years, we see tension in his family. As Mary and Joseph, they they not sure how to parent Jesus the same way you would parent your own kid. Could you imagine being one of Jesus' half-brothers or half-sisters? I mean, you thought the favorite child in your family was annoying. You thought your parents really needed to get a grip on how much their heart went out to that one kid and not you. One of those half-brothers was a guy named James who grew up in this house. He watched his half-brother, Jesus, grow a following and gain crowds. And then when Jesus was about 33 years old, he watched his half-brother be murdered by the Jews and the Romans. And, and his mom was at the foot of the cross, but his dad was nowhere to be found. This is somewhat indicative of a family that had experienced loss. To confuse the issue even more, in his final hours on the cross, it was To John that Jesus looked down from the cross, not James, when he said, John, behold, my mother who I want you to take care of as if she was your mother. Some of our messed up families get a run for our money by Jesus' own earthly family. But here's something extraordinary. It was also James who saw this, his half-brother resurrected from the dead, and it changed everything about his relationship with him, and it changed everything about his relationship with how he uh, lived his life and what family he belonged to. James was one of the first leaders in the church proclaiming the good news that his brother was actually God who died for our sins and rose from the dead. James made this statement in his letter to the church on wisdom that I want us to consider as we kind of think about division in our families today. I want to anchor us in the book of James. Open your Bibles to James. We're going to start in James 3. We're going to move into James chapter 4 this morning. You can open up your app or if you have, uh, I don't know, I'm kind of 
I'm, I'm kind of always old school with like bring a Bible to church. I kind of enjoy like hearing pages flip. That's kind of like, I don't know, I just, every time a, a bell rings, an angel gets his wings, and every time pages flip, a pastor feels proud. So um, thanks for being analog today. I want to open to James 3, verse 13, and here's what, here's what James, the half-brother of Jesus, who grew up in this really strange family, here's what he says. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? That's our aim, all of us, between the options of wise or fool, we all in our hearts put ourselves over here, right? We all want to be wise. And James says, well, here's a litmus test for you. Who's wise and understanding among you? By his or her good conduct, let them show their works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast and be false to the truth. Boasting in the sense that, oh, look at me, I'm wise. No, 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 no. James is kind of like, to, to borrow a word that my kids can't say, but I feel like is appropriate in the words right here if I was to transliterate it. It's like, hey, dude, shut up, right? Like, like, like keep it together. You're not that impressive, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder, division, and every vile practice. But, everybody say but. This is a contrast. we got to see this in the scripture. This is how you read the Bible. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to resolution, or open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And check this out. This is good for an agricultural town. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. It's a lot in here. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I just want to break it down quickly. James says that there's two paths for living that are demonstrated by how you act. There is earthly, false, unspiritual, even demonic, yes, even demonic ways of living that are demonstrated in a jealous heart and selfish attitude which leads to division. I should get what I want. What about me? These are the attitudes which predictably lead to disorder. And James says, don't fake peace by standing up and boasting about your wise living when you harbor selfish attitudes and wickedness. And in short, if we had to just label this way of living, we, um, Pastor Steve called it this, and I think it's really wise. He said, don't be a, a, a peace faker, right? A peace faker, someone who proclaims peace on the outside, but internally is just full of strife and anger and division in their own heart. Instead, on the other hand, wise living is demonstrated by meekness. Meekness. Everybody just say the word meekness. 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 Meekness is not, Weakness, there is a definite difference. Meekness isn't weakness. It is strength that is controlled. It is power that is focused. Like when you who can bench press the entire world hold for the first time a baby in your hands. That's meekness. It's, it's, you don't use all of the strength in you to stabilize that. No, no, you, you gently, you, you control your power. Jesus was not weak. Amen? Amen. All power. He said, all power, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. But he also says, uh, come to me for I am gentle and lowly. I am meek. I am meek. And that right there, for some of us today, that is enough. 
If in your family you're out of control in your power, if you're physical when you should be emotional, if you're too strong with your words when you should be charitable and hospitable, if you knew meekness, you might become not a peace faker but a peacemaker. Amen. This is what James says happens, that peaceful people reap what they sow. Peace. A harvest of righteousness sown in peace. You know what that means? Is the attitude of how you go about putting the seed in the ground is peaceful. Not trying to build your family on the back of your anger. Not trying to uh, get people in your family to subconsciously do what you want them, controlling every aspect, but just peaceably pouring into the, 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 the seeds of, of your kids and the seeds in your wife so that what comes out of it is a harvest of peace. See, peaceful people produce peace. If we want to take a step in our families towards solving for X, we got to figure out how to become peacemakers. That's exactly what James tells us in chapter 4, verse 1, how to become a peacemaker. To become a peacemaker requires we understand why there's even a fight in the first place. Look at this. You, you with me this morning? We, we, we about to talk about some honest things this morning? Yeah? I'm coming to your house, so let's get ready. Um, he says this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Let me just take that, that so much right there. James says the source of all of our division is that our own hearts are at war. Our passions are at war within us. Back in October, we were walking through the book of Romans. We got to Romans chapter 6. We saw this word passions in Romans chapter 6, verse 12. And I don't pretend to, you know, that you remember all of this, but I'll, I'll remind you. Here's Paul. Paul says this. Uh, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Your desires is, is really a better sense of it. Uh, do not present your members to sin as Instruments as, as weapons, as weapons for right, unrighteousness. We said back in October that this verse was a depictive of, of a war where there are double agent desires going on that are hijacking that which is good inside of you and twisting it on you that you might serve sin. James seems to be pretty in step here with Paul, doesn't he? Our point from October with this verse was that since I'm dead to sin and alive to God, my desires can be denied. And James is pointing out for us this morning that our passions, our desires, they reign in us causing war against us and against godliness. And family, if, if, if we want to experience the serenity of God's spirit in our families, we first have to solve for X. The first step for resolving conflict is this. I want you to write this down somewhere. Is this. You have to own your own war. Own your own war. Can you look at the person next to you and tell them, hey, you own your own war. I really meant for you to do that. You own your own war. Some of you, you've been waiting to say that to that person for a long time. Thank God in church we can take the first step towards reconciliation together. You gotta own your own war. There might be a million ways to say this. Your war is your war. You are your own enemy. The problem is you start with a man in the mirror. The reality of what James is saying is that the key to being a peacemaker is that you first have to own 
your own war. And this is huge because how many of us like to own other people's wars? That's me. Other people's wars are easier to own than my own. Has this ever happened in your marriage yet? Or maybe you've seen this happen at play in someone else's marriage. Your one spouse determined not to live like this forever, whatever this is, starts to dissect all the problems with their spouse to get to the root cause of why they aren't engaging in the conflict in a way that helps me. Then this one spouse will peel back all of this person's emotional layers. They'll develop elaborate theories of why their spouse is a moron. Why are they emotionally aloof? Why are they so aggressive? Why are they so passive aggressive? And, and this person's not a trained counselor, but they develop all of these Freudian type theories. They, they weren't cuddled enough as a kid, so that's how they are today. And they find their way into my office and they tell me all of these things. And then I, I, I laugh about this because it's so unfortunately true. I've heard this almost half the marital cases that I've talked through. One spouse will look at me and say, what they really need is a psychiatric evaluation. Everybody just say wrong war. Yeah, that's the wrong war. You're fighting the wrong war when you're trying to dissect the other person's problem. You cannot fight your own war in other people's souls. Your war is your war. And I've said this so many times, uh, maybe not to you guys, but I've said this a lot, especially living in Northwest Indiana on a day like today. You cannot change your spouse more than you can change lake effect snow. Go outside today, guys. Go outside and just breathe upon the wind. Try and move whatever system's about to hit us at noon. I'm calling it. It's going to be noon. Whatever system comes and just try and, try and blow it away. You try and just change the circumstances around of you. Outside of you, you can't do it. What you can change, though, is the war inside of you. And this is, this is James' whole point. He says, listen to my wisdom. Why are you fighting? Isn't it because inside of you are desires that are actually messing the whole thing up? Isn't it a you thing? James gives us two examples. He says greed and covetousness. He says you desire. You're greedy, but you can't get it. So what happens? You you murder. I'm not going to ask for hands. You want what someone else has, but you can't get it, so you fight. You never ask God about this. You never talk to him about this. So you take the matter into your own hands, and the war in you spills out of you and becomes a war between you. That's his point. I wonder how many of us are uncomfortable with James' insinuation that we don't have, and so we kill each other. Like, bro, um, he probably doesn't mean that you are murdering each other, literally, but certainly he, what he does mean is that the seeds of a sin that we all recognize as incredibly vile are actually present within you in that moment. Murder is almost always a crime of passion. The vast majority of murders over the course of humanity are reflective more of Cain and Abel, hatred for my brother, jealousy over something that they have that I don't have. Pastor Steve once told me a story. I actually think he's telling it at Crown Point this morning, so I, I feel like I can share it with you. That, a, you know, almost a couple decades ago now, he uh, was early on in his ministry up here and uh, 
there was a man in town who was murdered, and it was an unsolved case, and he was asked to do the funeral. And what do you say to a family? I've unfortunately been in this situation with even some of you. I know the pain and the heartache. And so here they are at the funeral when the family is beside themselves crying. He's doing his best to bring peace and comfort to the family, only to discover in the weeks that followed that they were the ones who had murdered the man. This is an extreme case, okay? We'll acknowledge it. Extreme case. But what is it that started in this family that would lead them down this road? Is it not uh, you desire and you do not have? It began with those people not owning their own war. James might have used a different uh, illustration. He might have said, you desire and you do not have, so you commit adultery. I don't know anybody who has accidentally committed adultery. It always begins back in the heart and small decision after small decision after small decision. If the war is permitted to grow in your own heart, it leads to the final death. So, friends, we got to own our own war. Own it with each other. Own it in your small groups. Right? We, we ought to be a church that is practicing naming our sin to one another so that we might turn from our internal conflict and keep it from becoming a family conflict. And the more we do this, the more we're going to see what James says is the hope for all of this, which rings true for us in verse 6. Don't miss this. This is such a, a small snapshot that he gives us. But look at what he says, James 4, verse 6. But he gives us more. Everybody say more. More grace. In spite of our chaos, God gives us grace. The way we get from a raging war within ourselves to sowing and reaping peace in our families is by the grace of God. There is no other way to solve our problems. Friends, there's, there's no other solution. It takes giving each other the same grace that God has given us. This is, I think, the extra step of division. This is the extra step of solving for X. It's, it's to give God-given grace. First, we got to own our own war, but then we got to give God-given grace. You can't give grace unless you've received grace. So I, I think we ought to consider the pending divorces in our families not in need of mediation, but in need of an extra measure of God's grace. And guess what? He gives more grace. And your estranged parent is not in need of a lecture, but they're in need of more grace. And your prodigal son is in need of more grace. And here's the best news for our divisions in our family. Whatever it is, that, that thing that's really causing you friction at Christmas is that God gives grace. And then he gives grace. And then he gives grace. And then he goes back and gives you more grace. And there is an endless supply of grace in the hands of the almighty God that is dispensed upon his people. Grace after grace after grace after grace after grace after grace after so much so that it drives humans insane. Jesus, how many times should we forgive? Is it seven? Surely that's enough. What does Jesus say? No, not seven, but 70 times seven. What is that? But grace after grace 
after grace, after grace, after grace, after grace. And if you want to be a fundamental legalist, I'm happy for you to be a legalist in this part right here. If you want to forgive 490 times, I'll say that's a good start. We got to give God given grace. It reminds reminds me again of Romans where sin increase, Paul says grace abounds all the more. Romans 5, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We've been justified by faith. We have peace with God. We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, which we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Friends, isn't it true? You want your family to be characterized by the words peace, grace, and hope, don't you? We become peacemakers then when we become conduits, channels of the grace of God that came to us but goes out of us. Here's a simple definition of peacemaking this morning. I want to submit this to you for your consideration. It's that biblical peacemaking is taking the heavenly grace and peace that you have received with God and extending it to your earthly relationships. Isn't this the gospel? That we've received peace and grace from God by the reconciliation that God initiated at the cross of Jesus Christ. God's reconciliation started with the applied blood-bought grace and forgiveness to the root problem. He, he took the, 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 the sacrifice of Christ and he paid for our sins. At the cross, we see God is not passive-aggressive, Right? No, to, to borrow a phrase, I think that Pastor Steve borrowed that I want to borrow for you as well, just so I'm tracing my being honest today. God was not passive aggressive. God was peace aggressive. There's a huge difference. Passive aggression on the part of God would have been to just turn his face away and ignore us forever so that we'd be left on this rock to rot. God hasn't done that. You know God hasn't done that. God was so desperate for us to have peace in his family and in our families. So he did something about it. He spilled the blood of his son. He rose from the dead. He gave commissions to the whole of his disciples to go therefore into all the world and preach this gospel. Paul tells us that we have been reconciled to God, therefore we have the ministry of reconciliation. And certainly this ministry of reconciliation is for us to say to other people, hey, you be reconciled to God, but also be reconciled to your brother. Isn't this the crux of the great commandment to love God and love your neighbor? How many of us, we live our lives just feeling like I need to be reconciled to you, God, but whatever happens on earth be left to chance? No, no, no. The gospel, if it has anything in your heart, it has to do with the reconciliation that exists when you learn to live in harmony with your brothers. In the Bible, this crossed racial lines. This crossed gender lines. And today we're saying this applies even within your own family. God is a peacemaker, not a peace faker. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And is it no, it's no accident that God's heavenly family is marked by earthly peace? So here, here's what I want to do in the final moments we have today, just the last five minutes here. Then I'll be in my seat. I think we got four 
application points for us to give God given grace, to take this extra step in resolving our divisions. I think we become peacemakers when we own the war inside of me, but then when we also give God given grace. When God brings peace to my heart, how do I bring peace to my family? Here's how. Four things. Uh, I want you to write these down. I want you to meditate on them, and I want you to, uh, this week, um, circle the one that you're trying to cross out. The one that you know is the hardest. I want you to think about this and apply it this week. The first is to graciously bear with it. Graciously bear with it. We cringe because this means allowing annoyances to continue. But maybe this is what Paul means in Colossians 3.13. He says this. He says, bearing with one another. Bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. The Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Graciously bear with it. These, these are the daily annoyances, the idiosyncrasies, the, the petty things the, that just graciously bearing with them brings peace in the family. I remember when Chris and I were married for just a few months, uh, I felt this war inside my own heart, and I had to learn that not everything that my wife does differently than me is a crime against humanity that requires a peace summit. You know what I mean? (laughs) My amen corner over here, Jerry and Kristen are amening that, so appreciate the rest of you for paying attention. Um. Here, so, so here's an example that I actually told Kristen that I was going to do, and she was like, okay. Uh, I, I, so when we were first married, and this is, this is about me, right? Um, I found out that the way that Kristen buys clothes is that she's so excited about the garment that she gets home, and she will rip the tags off of the, of the thing. You know the little thing that keeps the price tag onto the garment? There's like that little plastic piece. It looks like a T. If you take that off, you lost all of your money. You know what I mean? Like, you, gotta, you, gotta, you can't ever take that back. And um, I, I grew up in a civilized family. <laughs> we, we got scissors and then took the two pieces, immediately put them in the garbage. That was just like what you did because we were humans, right? <laughs> Not animals. No, so, so, so it didn't take me long, Kristen. Um, you know, it's great. She's buying clothes. It's wonderful. And um, I like when she buys clothes. But she would, she would rip the tags off, and then she'd throw away the, 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 the paper piece, but then lose track of that little invisible. Some of you are like, oh, my goodness, church is getting real for the first time in my life because I had this same struggle in my household. Right. It wasn't, but I think, you know, gosh, like maybe four months that I um, couldn't stand it any longer. How could she not see what she's doing to my feet? How could she not feel that they're there? I remember um, one day she was out doing something, and I, I was at home. I was cleaning up, probably organizing something. And um, I remember just being like, I'll show her. I'll show her how big it is. We have a problem right now. I'll show her how big this is. And I went around, and I picked up all the little pieces of the, um, those little clear plastic things. I put them in a little glass jar. I put them on the counter in our little apartment that we lived in back in the day. It was like the first thing you saw when you came through the door. And I, I wanted to put a little like, sign that said, like, 25 cents for every little tag. That'll teach you. Uh, but I didn't. And so she walked in the door, and... She goes, what is this? I go, yeah, what is this? (laughs) And she realized it, and she laughed. She goes, oh, I guess I do do that. And I said, this is not funny. (laughs) 
this, this is an outrage. This is ridiculous. This is barbaric. I can't, I can't believe this is, this is a major character defect. You need a psych evaluation. So, yeah, that's my heart. <laughs> and what is that? That is James telling me to own the war inside of you. That's a you thing, man. That's a, that's a Dan thing. That's not a Christian thing. That's a Dan thing. It's a Dan desire for a certain standard of living or a certain comfort or a certain convenience or a certain uh, desire not to have to pick up other people's little invisible pieces of garbage. That's a me thing. So grateful for my wife for being patient with me as God has worked on my heart. She does. So the second point is get a little jar. <laughs> no. Here, here's my question. If we look at this verse, bearing with one another, if one has a complaint against another, forgive one another. Um, do we think that Paul wrote this? for the sake of the little petty annoyances? No. I think what Paul had in mind was a lot bigger than just uh, they snore. It was just bigger than the, just they, they, they don't see the mess. It was bigger than just they have this idiosyncrasy that drives me nuts. What Paul was saying is, is in all things, graciously, extend the grace of God to you, bear with it. I've, I've learned one thing about doing funerals is that the crazy things that you do in this life that drive your family nuts are the things that they're going to cherish when you're gone. I really mean that. When I do a funeral, I ask the family, hey, tell me about this. And, and up pops all the idiosyncrasies, all the unique things that make you, you. The things that drove you nuts about that person in life, you will miss in death. Graciously bear with it. Number two, graciously cover it. Once Pastor Steve uh, took a rubber band and a message and, and described this principle of graciously covering over the sins of one another, calling it stretchy love, and I really hope one day he writes a book on it because it's a brilliant idea. If we, if we love one another with a kind of love that stretches over the sins that have been done to us such that we let God's grace work on the wound, we find that we can be sympathetic and empathetic and kind and compassionate for the failings of others. We, we can, in the old words of maybe this quasi-helpful phrase, we can hate the sin but love the sinner. This is 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, it's an interesting turn of phrase. First and foremost, this is the most important thing, keep loving one another earnestly. Like you can't say it more strongly, right? Like sincerely, this is the most important thing, always continue to love one another since love covers a multitude of sins. This is what love does in our families. It covers the alternative of covering one another's uh, sins is to be a sin police and lock up the perp and take them to court, to put out the jar and to interrogate them about it. But graciously covering it, it also doesn't mean endorsing or enabling bad behavior. It does mean maintaining the best interest of the other person first and foremost. Because when you love the person, you can give God-given grace in the situation. Listen, I think if we can just say it this way, don't be the type of person that requests the grace of God for your sins, but requires justice for the sins of others, right? Don't be the type of person that requests the grace of God for your own sins, 
but requires God's justice for the sins of others. Number three, graciously confront it. And aren't we glad that God actively confronted our sin on the cross, right? God actively confronted it in in grace. How many families have been passive-aggressive with one another when what was required was active, gracious confrontation? This is one of the lessons that we learn from Jesus in Matthew chapter 18. He says this. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. We often talk about this passage in the context of church discipline, but this is not technically a church discipline passage. It's really a family conflict passage. It's a peacemaking text, which means if any of your family members come to you confronting you and your sin in the spirit of Matthew 18, here's what you should do. You should thank them and listen to them. They love you enough to let love cover over your sin and they're giving you God-given grace. If they come to you, they care about you. How many times, though, when, when someone comes to us, if this happens in your family at all, that you should be grateful. Um, but if it happens, isn't your first knee-jerk reaction to be like, dude, who are you? You want to talk about sin? Man, I'll talk about sin. Jesus says, though, you should, you should gain your brother by graciously confronting. And if that happens to you, you should be grateful for the grace that's being extended to you. Engage. But I also want to give a note to those who have to go tell their brother their fault. I point out here that, that this point is called graciously confront it. Graciously confront it. Which means don't shame the other person with God's word. You know what I mean by that? By, by using the Bible as the sword, you're like, this is the sword of the Lord and I'm going to pierce my bro. You take, take the Bible and you wrap it up and you create a little bit of a mallet out of it and you just hit the other person over the head with God's word. No, no, no. Graciously confronting means it means carefully choosing your words and carefully choosing your timing. Going in the spirit of Proverbs 25, 11, says a word fitly spoken. That's the, that's, if you're a craftsman, that's the word that's been measured, that's been cut, that's been chiseled to be exactly the right fit. You're putting this, this thing right in its place. It is a word fitly chosen. Listen to what, it, what it's like. It's like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Today, we just say it's money. The right word at the right time is just money. It is money. Graciously bear with it. Graciously cover it. Graciously confront it. And finally, graciously move past it. I want you to write that down. Graciously move past it. I think when families practice this extra step of revolving, resolving division in your families by graciously moving past it, it makes the whole community rejoice. I, I, I don't have time, and we didn't plan this today, but there are stories of families at our church who have done this exact process over the past four years. And every time I see a family grow in healing, grow in harmony, getting past the sins one of another, you know what it makes me do as a pastor? It makes me want to just like jump up and down and be like, Hey, everybody, I want to tell you this family's business is kind of inappropriate, but you got to know that God's at work in their life. It's amazing. Like, that's just what, like, the community rejoices because only God can reconcile. Whenever you see reconciliation in the world, it is only an act of God. And when we graciously move past it, we're, 
we're allowing God's grace to be front and center in our lives. This is not forgive and forget, not at all. I don't even know if that's possible in this life. This is active forgiveness and active growth passes. This is choosing to forgive. Forgiveness is love that pays a price. To move past it means you may have to pick up the tab of sin. You may, it may cost you something that you have to work through. It also means choosing to engage. Two verses here, again, Colossians 3, is bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Ephesians 4, this is the gospel. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Let's say it all together at the end here. As God in Christ has forgiven you. Forgiveness, it's the love that pays the price to absolve the debt and to move past it. Man, we, we may have to throw our skin in the game, but why do we do it? It's because we remember what God did for us. When we graciously forgive one another, here's what you're saying. You're saying three things. When you graciously uh, move past it, here, here's what you're saying. Number one, I will not hold this against you any longer with you. Which means in our conversations, in our communication, in our fights, I'm not gonna go back to that time that I've already forgiven you from and bring it up again like the ghost of Christmas past. Instead, I'm gonna choose to move forward with you. But when you graciously choose to move past it, it also means that I'm not gonna hold it against you with other people. I'm not calling my dad, I'm not calling my mom. Every time something happens, I'm not bringing up the past in a way to keep us trapped in a system of dysfunction. I'm going to choose in my relationships with others to validate your growth in grace. I'm here to support you, I'm here to forgive you, I'm here to walk with you. And the best that I can do that in the company of our family and our friends and our church, I'm, I'm not gonna hold this against you. And finally, this is the hardest one. Graciously moving past, it means I will not hold this against you with me. I'm not gonna choose to see you as forever the version of that one moment. Instead, if God's grace is applied in your life, then I, I'm gonna choose to see you the way God sees you. I'm going to, in my own heart, get over my own pain and acknowledge that it hurts and God's grace is gonna heal but I've got to let you go from that bondage so that we might have peace. I don't know what your brother's done against you. In my own family, the tension that exists, I don't even know how it started. I don't even know what happened. And yet, how important it is for all of us to apply grace to your brothers. Grace to your parents' grace. It's, it's probable that you can't forget the events that divided your family, but you can graciously move past it. And over time, the division that is healed by grace, it becomes a foggy memory in our past. I wanna end this sermon, but I can't because I hear an objection. Dan, you don't understand and I will never get over it. Right? I'll never get over it them. I want you to know that that's only as true as you want it to be. 
How you forgive shows what you believe about the gospel. Jesus taught us to pray. He said, he said, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. As we forgive those who trespass against us. I think there's two ways you could look at this. You could say, uh, maybe this is a template. God, forgive me the way that I forgive others. I'm not convinced of that, but maybe that's what you think it is. God, forgive me the way that I forgive others. And if this is your interpretation, we'll go with it for a second. I ask the question, how thoroughly then are you expecting God to forgive you? The other way of understanding this is actually what I believe Jesus is teaching. That is to say, God, you've forgiven me such a great debt that I need your grace to forgive the lesser debts that my family and my neighbors have assumed with me. Whichever way we see it, Jesus is coaxing us to forgive and graciously move on. So one more time, graciously bear with it, graciously cover it, graciously confront it, and graciously move past it. I think if we take this and apply it to the war in our own soul and, and, and it becomes the grace that we extend to our family, we know that the divisions that we experience in all of our families can be healed, not just repaired, but, but isn't it true that scars heal thicker? That the division that is rot your family apart and God's hands can be sewn back together, stitched back together such that they're the thing that God uses to heal your family so that it's stronger than ever before. This is what God does. Friends, I ask we not die divided. So no shame, just grace. This week, I wonder what it's gonna take for you to sow peace in your family.